From Muhlenberg College, this is 2400 Chew. I'm Tammy Katzoff, and in each episode of this podcast, I talk to one Muhlenberg graduate about their current work and the industry in which that work is done. For this episode, I spoke with Robert Torres, class of 2001, who is a sign language interpreter and an accessibility specialist for the Bethlehem School District, working with high school students who are deaf and hard of hearing. As I do with most of these interviews, I began the conversation by asking how and when Robert became interested in his occupation. Well, I'm a dancer. I'll put it that way. I started out uh, my first career, well, even when I was young, just dancing around, all, always, always bothering everybody I could. But then once I graduated high school, I started dancing in concert dance, guesting uh, around the country with uh, different ballet companies. I worked with the Joffrey Ballet School and the Harkness Ballet Schools in New York on scholarship there. And then um, I started doing uh, musical theaters when I met my friend who uh, talked to me about musical theater. I was a concert dance snob. And she kind of said, well, no, I I like musical theater. I was like, okay, I do too. I was able to get my uh, actor's equity card in the uh, actor's union And I started touring the United States with different shows and I was able to perform in the show that I really, really wanted to do, which is Cats. I did the national tour, a national tour of Cats. And uh, my first big show actually was uh, Evita. And I did that for two and a half years touring uh, the United States and Canada. From there, I got married. I had been uh, learning um, sign language because my uh, spouse had learned sign language because she was a progressively losing her hearing. So I was like, well, if we're going to talk to each other later on, we might as well learn how to, you know, total, you know, total communication is, is what we're about. And then it was, once we had my daughter, it was kind of like, well, do we follow my career or her career? And we decided we would follow her career. I would take care of my daughter. And uh, that's when we moved to uh, Muhlenberg and she uh, created the dance program at Muhlenberg. And I, um, went and I got trained to be a sign language interpreter because even before she got the job at Muhlenberg, I started training for that. And I figured uh, wherever she goes, I will probably be able to get a job doing some sort of interpreting somewhere. So being the trailing spouse, that was my job. Mm -hmm. And your wife is? Karen Dearborn, the founder of the dance program at Muhlenberg. So that's when I started doing the sign language interpreting is um, because I was the trailing spouse. I had gone and gotten trained for it so that I could do it wherever we went. How did you become trained in sign language interpreting? Like I said, when um, my wife and I were in New York, she found out she started losing her hearing. So she started learning sign language and that's, well, this was before we got married. And I started taking classes because I knew that um, at some point, you know, well, if she couldn't hear me, then I needed, I wanted to be able to communicate with her. Mm -hmm. So it was starting off that way with the, uh, just taking sign language classes, uh, working on the vocabulary, starting to work on the syntax and realize that American sign language is its own language. It's not, you're not just doing, changing one word to hand gestures or something. It's, it has its own grammar and everything. So mm-hmm. while I was uh, learning to do that, Karen, my wife, she went to work for National Theater of the Deaf in Connecticut for the summers. And she was teaching dance there. 
so I would go and visit and I would speak with some of the um, actors and some of the f- people who founded the place. Most of them were deaf. And as they would speak to me, they were very generous and kind and the way they would understand me and, and they would offer me not corrections, but they were offered me different ways of presenting what I wanted to say. And it gave me a sense of ease and um, acceptance in a sense. Hmm. So a lot of it, I think, has to do with how you get into it. And and the other thing, too, is why. For me, I wanted to be able to communicate with someone who possibly wasn't going to be able to communicate with me. So that was um, my whole reason. So that's how I did it. Now, once I decided I wanted to be an interpreter, I went to the North uh, Western Community College interpreter training program. And I started taking classes in the history and the, and the ASL classes that were led by a teacher who was uh, deaf, going out and, and doing the deaf clubs, they're called, and, and interacting. And so becoming more part of the community, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Then also learning the rules of accessibility and interpreting. It's like, sure, you don't share what people say, you know, if you're, if you're an interpreter. So how long was that training process just to be an interpreter? Do you have some kind of certification or what was that process? Well, the process of the training program is a two-year community college uh, associate's degree program. Mm -hmm. Uh, I got through most of it before we left. I didn't finish the program as, you know, to get a degree in it. But then the classes that I did, I actually was able to transfer over to uh, some of them to uh, L-Tri-C and uh, eventually got my associate's degree f- from there here, you know, here in the Valley. Mm-hmm. But as far as the certification is concerned, I went and took the EIPA, which is the Educational Interpreters Performance Assessment. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, after a, a, a few times taking it, actually, I didn't pass it, quote unquote, pass it with a well enough score the first time. So I had to take it a couple of times. And after I got the appropriate score that is, uh, made me qualified, I am now, in a sense, certified and qualified to provide educational sign language interpreting. Tell me about what it means to be an interpreter. What, what are you doing? I'm going to guess that it's not as simple as it seems. Like, what happens when you are called to do this or when you are expected to do this? Well, basically, as an interpreter, you are asked to come in and to become the ears and the voice of a person who is deaf or hard of hearing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're just the ears because they would voice for themselves. Sometimes they would be able to lip read or they would hear enough, but either for some reason they don't, they didn't, wouldn't want a voice for themselves. So, and then sometimes they would listen, they would respond. And every now and again, you would get a look and you would fill in whatever it is that was just presented so that they could be sure of what they were responding to. Because lip reading, um, and I forget the percentages, I mean, it's like usually it's somewhere below 50% that you actually understand with some who are really well, or once you really un- know the person that you're speaking with, it, gets, it can get higher. But there's a lot of other things involved besides lip reading for that. So as an interpreter, when you are hired as a freelance interpreter, you are guided under the uh, guidelines of the uh, interpreter uh, registry of the interpreter for the deaf guidelines. And 
you go in, you uh, present yourself in a professional manner. Once the client, as we call them, begins whatever process they're doing, you are in a sense no longer there. You are only their eyes, their ears, and their voice. Mm. For me, when I always did it, it was about total communication. So whether it was sign language, whether it was uh, just fingerspelling, mime, dance, whatever I needed to do in order to get the message across, and it would be in, in connection with that client, how they wanted it presented. Mm-hmm. Some wanted it more English, some wanted it more ASL. And so in those respects, you go in and you do the job. When the job is done, the client leaves, you leave. If anybody asks you anything about the client, you don't know anything about the client. It's not for them to ask me. Even mm. if I did know something about the client, it would be, a, I'm sorry, I, I, you know, I can't, I don't know. I can't speak to you about that or that's not. You, you know, you want to ask a question, ask them. They will right. answer it or not. As far as moving into the educational realm, that at the beginning was a struggle for me because I was a, a freelance interpreter to begin with. Mm-hmm. So I was going by the, you know, interpreter guidelines and, and, you know, confidentiality and everything. And when I moved into the educational realm, Now you're working with a team and the team is working toward the best possible outcome for the student that you're working with. So I needed to find out and do some more research about how you, the confidentiality is still there, but within the team, there are certain things you need to share so that the team can support the student. Hmm. And the whole goal is for success. And so that was moving into the educational thing, which when I actually did my information degree at uh, Muhlenberg and then became the webmaster for Muhlenberg and I started working on the accessibility of Muhlenberg's website and kind of finding out how inaccessible it was. Back in the early two, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, um, and then started working with Priscilla Howard and Wendy Cole on providing accessibility for the students. Our goal was to make sure that the students, for whatever reason, they needed some assistance, and we would do whatever we could to help them succeed. Mm. And that was the goal, and I was very proud of that. What would you say are the most challenging parts of your job and what are the most rewarding parts of your job if those two things are different from each other? The most challenging is having it be a second language. I mean, I am not a native signer. There are some people who had family members growing up or friends of family members or something that they would socialize with as they were younger children and they would begin signing at a very early stage. And then a lot of that is not so much the expression of it, the signing part of it. It's the receptive part, which is understanding somebody else and their communication. Having it be a second language for me, not being a native American sign language speaker, the biggest challenge for me is 
initially getting to understand how a person communicates and understanding and being able to express what they want to get across effectively. Along with that is um, finger spelling. That's one of my biggest challenges. I keep working on it. And whenever there's another interpreter around, I ask them to help and support because the whole point is to get the message across. It's not about me getting it across. And so that's something I just, I got to keep working on it. As far as the rewarding part of it, right now with the students, it's been quite rewarding to have them get the light bulb turn on. And part of that, I'm going to say, is because I truly do focus on total communication that as the teacher is expressing what they're doing and talking, and as I'm presenting it to my student, I will gauge their understanding. And so I might adjust things a little bit to, to kind of go, oh, I know that they are interested in this. And so somehow I'll associate whatever the teacher is saying with something that makes them go, oh. And then I would start seeing the things start to bubble. And then they might actually raise their hand and ask a question. And um, often the questions that they ask, I am somewhat embarrassed to voice. Some, and it's not that it's a, an inappropriate subject. It's, you know, as an adult or as a you know, person, it's like, I know the answers. I know the subject. I'm familiar, so, but I'm not the teacher. So I'm interpreting. I'm putting the information. So the student would ask a question and it would involve some sort of, um, what is, um, a more recent, you know, thing on TV or, or an anime or, or a YouTube cartoon or something. And they would ask this question and I would voice it. And it has just been so pleasurable to see an entire classroom smile and start saying, I was thinking the same thing. And then they would carry it and then they would move it on. And that one of my students who are normally pushed aside and invisible in the past would be brought forward. And mm -hmm. then everybody would be going, that's right. And what about this? Do you remember this? And then he they would respond and, you know, and it would go back and forth when the communication opens up and they're not thinking about me as an interpreter, they are just talking about the subject. All is good. Right. How has your job, your career been affected by the current pandemic? Well, we, uh, the, the public schools uh, in Pennsylvania closed down in March we were off for a week, not knowing what was going to happen. And then they started saying, okay, we're going to start online instruction. Uh, different school districts did different things, different levels did different things, but they basically went online and they did not want to overwhelm the families. And so there was this thing about not too much work. IU20 and the hearing support program, which is what I'm part of, they decided they wanted to offer daily educational opportunities. And so we had our students from nine to 12, Monday through Friday on zoom for the rest of the year until mm. they finished in June. It was a struggle to begin with. 
Also trying to figure out, um, you know, making sure Wi-Fi and, and getting the right technology working. That was all a little interesting. We also figured out a way to do class so that it would be enough to work with them on a specific thing. The teacher would um, give them so much work. They would have questions. If we needed to interpret, we were there and we were hands up on the screen. If we froze, another interpreter would jump in. And, you know, so we were, we were trying to do that as much as we could. We would also take the students out to breakout rooms. And then we would deal with them as interpreters. Uh, these are the students that we would be out in the mainstream classroom with them. And we would be dealing with those classroom subjects, which they would get from their students on um, the internet. And we would uh, uh, work with them and try to help them to get through the work, number one. And number two, start trying to talk to them about whatever issues they did have. And what about uh, the future? What is, what is the future hold for how you do your job? They, they're still working on it and it's a, it's a challenge. Mm. I know that I am looking to get one of those masks that they've created that have a clear plastic panel so that uh, my lips are seen. And if that doesn't happen, I'm planning on wearing my mask for transitions. And then uh, I have a face shield that I used for cabinet making and uh, carpentry shops. And I'm going to wear that. And when I get to wherever I need to, and I, you know, I'll drop the mask and interpret. And then as soon as I need to, I'll put it back on. Because I just would like to stay as safe as possible for not only myself, but it's like, well, if I, something happens to come my way, I don't want to share it. Right. Everybody needs to, I think, deal with it the way they need to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing about the COVID, you know, going online with the students, we started to, which is unfortunate, is like we started noticing that our students and this might be the same for many more, started becoming very lonely. And some of them were actually very fearful. And we would talk to them about, okay, well, listen, today, why don't you go outside and draw on your sidewalk or your driveway, get some chalk or go over there and do something and I take a picture of that. And they wouldn't do it because they didn't want to go outside their house. And so we spent a lot of time, we were, our, our mandate or our, what we were instructed to do was not to teach or tell any student or family how to deal with COVID-19 uh, or the coronavirus or, or all this. We could speak about the virus and about what was happening in the state or things, but we needed to make sure not to say, oh yeah, you can go out or, oh, go out, but wear a mask, you know, or this is what you do to protect yourself, but you can do it. We needed to be very careful because we're not, you know, the World Health Organization. We're not the CDC. We, you know, we're not, we're not doctors. And so the information that we needed to give was in terms of what is happening in the world, what is happening in the state, what is happening in our community. And now they as family members needed to decide for themselves how they would deal with it. Just like everybody must. You sure. deal with it yourself. We did notice 
some, uh, I'm not going to, uh, I don't want to say depression, some sadness and some withdrawing. And that's specifically with your, with your deaf students. With the students that are deaf, yes, de- deaf and hard of hearing. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean that it wasn't happening with others, but we were seeing them five days a week for three hours. And, you know, and, and during that time, it's like we would get them to laugh. We would get them to join in some fun or whatever if we could. And, but then sometimes they just, they weren't having it. You know, whether they were tired or, you know, they hadn't slept the night or, you know, we kept trying to find out, well, what's going on? It's, you know, they're teenagers. They don't mm. wanna, sometimes they don't want to share. Right. I wonder how much of that was happening with the other populations and, you know, in the K to 12, even college, any student that needed to go, how they were how that isolation, how that self-isolation and not being able to go out and do things safely, how, you know, how that has affect people. I don't know. I only know what I saw. And mm. it was, that was, it was sad at times to, you know, that was, that was difficult. Right. For anyone out there listening, whether it's a current Muhlenberg student or anyone else who is interested in eventually doing interpreting work, what kind of guidance or recommendation would you give them? Well, learning sign language is a great thing. My wife and I have conversations across the room sometimes. It's quite lovely. Uh, the thing we found out and the thing that everybody should know is if you start learning sign language and you're thinking of having private conversations in a public area, just know and realize that there are probably several people around you who do know sign language <laughs> in some form. Mm-hmm. We have found this out at times. Uh, I mean, fortunately, we weren't discussing anything too private, but, um, you know, it's one of those things where all of a sudden, you know, we're there talking about some stuff or whatever. And, and then a little bit later, somebody would come up and they would sign something to us and we go, oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> if you do get into learning sign language, it's a great thing. It's a, it's a wonderful way to have total communication. But just understand a lot of people, it's not a private language, as private as it used to be. Secondly, if you decide to go into seeking becoming a sign language interpreter, make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Many people feel like they want to become interpreters because they want to help. They want to help those who are deaf and hard of hearing. And as an interpreter, my job is not to help them. My job is to provide, to become their ears and their voice in whatever manner they need. If they don't need it, I don't provide it. If they do only need one and not the other, that's what I do. As an interpreter, I'm not an advocate. I am just there to provide a service. Mm. So if someone wants to become a sign language interpreter, understand that there are differences. If you want to become an advocate, that's something else. You can learn sign language. You can become an interpreter in a sense. But when you become that advocate role, it's different than when you're a sign language interpreter. Sometimes early on when I was doing it as an educational interpreter, someone would always look at me and go, well, don't you care about, you know, these students? And my response was always, 
something to the effect of, uh, well, no, I just want to get the communication right. Uh, it's like it, their understanding of it, as long as they understand what I am interpreting, what I'm signing, their understanding of the topic or the subject is their responsibility. Mm. And so if you get into interpreting, consider why you want to and understand that when you do and you do your job correctly, a couple things happen. One, you become a conduit. And two, oftentimes the subject matter or whatever is being talked about, you don't really remember. A third thing is people always think, oh, and then it's very uh, tired. You can get, you know, it's um, physically challenging because you're sitting there waving your arms in the air like you just don't care, you know, and all this <laughs> stuff. And the thing is, is that, yes, but you train for that. And it's just like anything, you become accustomed to it. You become used to it physically mm -hmm. with what you need to do. But it's more the mental exhaustion that happens. And that's why whenever you're interpreting or whenever you see an interpreter and it's longer than 30, 40 minutes, there's a second interpreter because the first one needs a break to stop and go, okay, let all of that stuff get out of my brain. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm going back to neutral and okay, now I'm ready. Huh. Wow. Because it's, it's, a, it's, it's all mental. It goes in your ears and it has to come out your hands. This episode of 2400 Chew was produced by me, Tammy Katzoff, Associate Director of the Muhlenberg College Career Center. It was recorded remotely and engineered by Paul Kremposky at the studios of WMUH, Allentown, Pennsylvania. Our opening and closing music from Cowboy Bebop is performed by the Muhlenberg College Jazz Big Band.